Morning, church. Happy Independence Day weekend. Um, Particularly warm welcome to any guests or visiting family we have from afar. We are so glad you guys are with us today. Thanks for joining us. Uh, My name is Travis. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here. Uh, And I want to start this morning's teaching by introducing you to a guy who I doubt that any of you would know his name, uh, Mark Camposano. He is... um, the, uh, sits on the board for the Veritas Forum, which is a think tank um, that started in Harvard, a Christian think tank. Um, he's also vice president for Pacific Life out in California. He clerked for the U.S. Supreme Court. He has degrees from Harvard and then Oxford and then Yale. Uh, so a fa- fairly intelligent guy. Uh, um, th- years ago, long before um, these family picks, Mark was on a flight from London to New York, uh, seated next to a senior partner of his law firm. Um, When dinner arrived, knowing that a number of the folks uh, in the law firm were hostile to Christianity or religion in general, um, he didn't want to trigger any negative stereotypes that were then focused on himself, and so he tried, when the meal came on the flight, uh, he tried to inconspicuously bow his head. Uh, He was not subtle enough. Immediately, the senior partner sitting in the seat next to him says in a booming voice, what are you doing? Are you praying? You're not a Christian, are you? He said he froze, felt trapped, but the words of Jesus from Matthew 10 kept echoing in his brain. Quote, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father. So he paused, gulped, and then he replied, as a matter of fact, I am a Christian. Silence, two beats, and then the senior partner smiled, winked, and replied, good, me too, Please say grace for both of our meals. (laughs) And Christians, it always ends just like that. (laughs) Be blessed, now go. All right, so in a number of contexts, that one's a good story. Um, It's a nice picture. It's an encouraging one. But in a number of contexts, I think you'll agree with me, identifying as a Christian can be kind of tricky. Um, if, you are, if you're brand new to this stuff, if you are just beginning to explore church or Bible, um, again, really, really glad you're here with us this morning. Um, for those who have, are Christians, maybe you've been Christians for a while, and you might have realized uh, along the way that living a Christ-centered identity, which means coming clean about who we are, what we believe, and to whom we belong, living a Christ-centered identity, that's not always easy. In a non-Christian or a post-Christian culture, a Christ-centered identity can create some uncomfortable dilemmas, which is what then makes the book of Esther this 2,500-year-old, what on earth does a book this old have to teach me, book of the Bible, so 
remarkably relevant today because what we find in this particular book, and if you're first time this morning, this is the only book of the Bible that never once mentions the name of God even a single time, what we find here are the people of God trying to live in a place that is seemingly absent God. So for our summer series, what we've been discovering is that the theme of this book, the theology that's packed into Esther, is that the unseen God is the God behind the scene. The unseen God is the God behind the scene. Uh, Quick recap for our guests. Persian king, Xerxes, he's deposed Queen Vashti. In her place, he's raised up a new queen, Jewish name Hadassah, Persian name Esther. Uh, Along the way, we've also met Mordecai. That's Esther's biological cousin, but her adopted dad. And then last week, we met uh, a very wicked man named Haman. Um, He uh, convinced the king to issue an empire-wide decree, uh, or uh, really a a pogrom, which is an, an organized massacre of an entire ethnic group, in this case, the Jews across the Persian Empire, which stretches at that time from India all the way to Ethiopia. Enormous empire. Um, so it's, it's a disaster. It looks really, really bad. And all of that brings us then this morning, if you open up your Bibles, to the book of Esther, chapter 4. Esther, chapter 4. If you haven't turned there already and you want to use one of the church Bibles, this is on page 412. And if you're, if you're coming back after maybe a while away, um, uh, you chose a good Sunday because Esther chapter 4 is the, it's the narrative, it's the literary, it is the theological high point in the book of Esther. There's a, there's a lot more story uh, to come here, uh, but this is, in this chapter, this is where we see kind of the inflection point, the crisis of identity, a choice has to be made in this chapter. But it's not a choice over an airplane dinner prayer with potential, maybe, career implications. This is a choice where literally millions of lives hang in the balance. Uh, The genre for Esther, historical narrative, which means this really happened. All of it, exactly as is described. And quietly in the background, the unseen God is the God behind the scene. All right, that's the setup. Esther 4, beginning at verse 1. Hear now the very word of the Lord. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. 
Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise to the Jews from another place. I'll read that again. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish... I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. All right, thus ends the reading of God's word. Uh, For the note takers in the crowd, we have three handholds listed out in the program uh, that you should have received at the door. Uh, First one to kind of just draw a line through the text here, you can pencil in the word dismay. Dismay. So following... Chapters 1 and chapter 2. Last week, Pastor Don took us through chapter 3. I took a lot of notes in that sermon. I hope you did too. And you'll recall um, that we were introduced and we met this man named Haman who is walking around feeling pretty awesome. (laughs) He is feeling pretty awesome about himself because he just got this promotion to essentially the second in command of the entire empire beneath King Xerxes himself. So he's feeling awesome. He is walking around thinking it is pretty awesome that now all the people by the king's decree have to bow down to him. He has just got awesome sauce dripping off of himself. And then his eyes turn to slits. Because in a sea of consensus, he sees one man of conviction. Some guy named Mordecai who is not bowing with everyone else bowing. And the quote... Haman was filled with fury. And so that then, if you recall, that was the catalyst that caused Haman to convince the king to issue a decree that not just one Jew needs to be slaughtered, Mordecai, but all the Jews everywhere need to be slaughtered. And that was kind of where we were left at the end of chapter 3 with that amazing picture of the king and Haman sitting down for a drink while the entire city is thrown into chaos. Okay, so now we got all the players on the chessboard. We got King Xerxes and his abuse of power. We got Mordecai, 
who's outside of power. We've got Esther, who's wedded to power. And now we've got Haman, who's absolutely corrupted by power. So turning the page from chapter 3 into chapter 4, this is now where the king's decree prompts Mordecai, and actually it says Jews all over the empire, but zooming in on Mordecai, it prompts him to enter this time of very deep mourning, of lament, maybe dismay, possibly even despair. It says he tears his clothes. You know, we think of um, Joshua and Caleb tearing their clothes because the Israelites would not go into the promised land that had been given to them. You think of King David tearing his clothes at the death of his friends. You think of uh, Ezra tearing his clothes at the wild disobedience of the Jews. And then Mordecai, he replaces the clothing that he's torn with uh, sackcloth. It's made of goat's hair. Um, It's the stuff that was used to make um, bags for grain and spices. And it constantly irritates the skin so there's no comfort for the mourner. And then Mordecai goes over to his fireplace and he picks up big fistfuls of ash. And he just pours them over his head and his face and his shoulders it's a way of identifying with death itself. And then that's how he goes back into the city, like a ghost, right up to, but of course not into, the palace gate. And I don't think this is a main thrust of the text, but I do think I can offer it as just a quick word of application that we're reminded in that scene, church, that there is an important place in the Christian life for honest lament, honest grieving. Um, In the West, particularly men, I think that I can say this after years and years of men's small groups, um, we don't always know how to grieve well. Or just speaking for myself, I am often quite tempted to move, to, to just kind of skate around and get past heartache as quickly as possible and, and remove the discomfort and remove the sadness. Um, and I actually, I, don't, I, I wonder if that's not the very thing that Esther's trying to do at the start of our second point. First point, dismay. Second point, dialogue. Dialogue. Because Esther hears about Mordecai at the gate, and what's her first inclination? It's verse 4. She sends him out a new pair of jeans and a clean shirt. <laughs> but he declines doesn't want new clothes. He's not done grieving. And instead, now we get this back and forth dialogue because Mordecai, you know, even though it's his adopted daughter, he can't text her, can't phone her inside the palace. So now we get this, um, enter in uh, the side character, Hathak, who's like the friend carrying notes at recess between the kids. You guys, re- It's kind of a funny scene, actually. You guys remember this? And ex- except, you know, in, it's not quite third grade because the note that Mordecai is sending to her, it does not say, do you like me? Circle yes or no. It says, will you help me stop a genocide? Circle yes or no. Verse 7, Mordecai says, Hathak, I need you to go right back into that palace, and I need you to tell my cousin, my, my adopted daughter, who is now the queen, what Haman and her own husband have decreed an extermination of our people. Here's the proof. Here's a copy of the decree that went out in this city. That's verse 8. You tell her 
She has got to go to the king. And once Esther gets that message, she replies, no. No. See, established long before this, um, one of the Medo-Persian kings, his name was Diocese, and he was the one who first uh, created this law. And of course, you remember, law of Medes and Persians, can't ever possibly change them. They're written in stone in this sum. So he was the one who created this law that forbid anyone from approaching a king unless he had been summoned by the king. Um, archaeologists have these uh, big stone carvings that we found of giant bodyguards with giant axes standing behind the Persian king. Um, and so the rule was, if someone comes unbidden, then the king either gives like a wink and a nudge to the bodyguards, he holds out his scepter, which means acceptance, or they chop off the person's head. Someone maybe less familiar with the book says, oh, okay, but come on, Trav. I mean, this is his wife. I don't think that's going to happen. What's the worry for her here? Well, as we'll see in the chapters to come, Esther's a pretty savvy lady. And I think she reads her situation clearly here. Okay, five years prior, I know you don't see it in the text so clearly, but it was five years prior that she was chosen as queen for two reasons. You remember what they were? Because she had a good figure and she was nice to look at. Chapter 2, verse 7. She had a good figure and she was nice to look at. Okay, well, as tends to happen when that is the foundation of a relationship, five years on, the king's interest has probably cooled somewhat. In fact, I'm sure it has. Because verse 11 says that this king hasn't even slept with her in 30 days. And I promise you that this king was not sleeping alone. So the threat to Esther is quite real. You've got a narcissistic, emotionally unstable king who just declared an empire-wide extermination of an entire people group. We know he's already gotten rid of at least one wife. Vashti is gone because she did not approach the king when he told her to. Esther might soon be gone because she does approach the king when she wasn't supposed to. Which means we might be down two queens here before we even make our way to chapter 5. And so that's why Esther sends back to Mordecai, (laughs) thanks, but no thanks. And here's where you got to hit pause on the narrative. You take a step back, you know, move from the 30-foot level to the 30,000-foot level. And you ask yourself, okay, in a book like this, in, in a messy, real-life, historical narrative book like Esther, what do I need to be looking for? Particularly in the Old Testament, and particularly in the book of Esther, we got to be looking for the God-shaped holes in the narrative. Okay? That, that, and that's good practice, by the way, in our own lives, too. When, when we don't know what's going on. What, what is happening behind the scene here? What are the God-shaped holes in the narrative? Because now is the moment where Mordecai, 
who up to this point has been a very puzzling character. He's got, we, I mean, we have debates in the church office about what is driving this guy. Because Esther is such a tricky book to interpret because you're never given insight into the motivation of the characters on the page. You're given the facts. This is what they did. Why did they do what we did? So we find ourselves wondering, I mean, he's such this convoluted character. He appears to have very complex motivations. But here in chapter four is where he steps forward now and he offers a word of crystal clear theology down at street level. And it's great. First thing he does is a warning. Verse 13. He says, Esther, listen, if you refuse to identify as a Jew, okay, if you choose the clothes and the jewels and the cosmetics and the food in the palace, if you refuse to identify as a Jew and instead you just identify as a girl in the palace, don't you think for one minute that that palace is going to protect you. You are not just Esther. You are Hadassah, and eventually, you will be found out. Second thing Mordecai says is probably the most important sentence in the entire book. Verse 14, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Can you, can you hear the theology, the ocean of theology behind that sentence? That is as strong a statement of faith in God's providence and God's promise as you will read here. Right? Because the, the, the question posed to Esther wasn't, will God accomplish his purpose? The question was, are you going to be a part of it, Esther? Because reality check, this beautiful girl with DNA that made her beautiful because God was the one who built the DNA that made her beautiful, she's not indispensable to God's plan. You know that, don't you? No queen is. No president is. No preacher is. You stick your finger in a glass of water and pull it back out. As soon as that hole fills back up with water, that's how quick God can replace any one of us who decides, you know what? I'm just going to go do my own thing. The Lord's purpose will be accomplished no matter what. A.W. Tozer Uh, late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, He once said that human history, uh, this is very helpful to me. He said, human history is like a cruise ship where all the people on board, right? They're free to make choices and they're responsible for those choices. But they are not free to alter the course of the ship. Quote, The mighty ocean liner of God's sovereign design keeps its steady course over the sea of history. God moves undisturbed and unhindered toward the fulfillment of those eternal purposes which he purposed in Christ Jesus before the world began. And so Mordecai's question to Esther wasn't, will you or will rather, will God be faithful to his promise to preserve his people? 
Will God be faithful to preserve his promise to his people? Of course God will. The question to Esther was the same one that landed on Mark Camposano's business class trade table. It's the same question that comes down to us this morning. Will you, Christian, participate in God's mission by identifying with God's people? Are you going to be bold enough to come clean about who you are, what you believe, and to whom you belong? Because after all, who knows? Verse 14. Who knows if you weren't put in just this place for just this time? Or if you, maybe you're a little bit older and you memorize it in the old King James. Who knoweth whither thou art cometh to the kingdom for such a time as this? And that's the question he asks. It's kind of a rhetorical one, right? That then takes us to the last point on the outline. You got um, dismay, and we got dialogue, and then last one, decision. <laughs> decision. Uh, uh, Tim Keller, um, who's a pastor in New York, a lot of us um, are familiar with, we appreciate. Uh, he tells the story of a woman fairly new to his church. Uh, so he, in conversation, you know, asking her how she found out about the church, how she came to be attending, and this is what she said. A while back at work, I made a mistake, a really big mistake, and it should have cost me my job and probably my career, but my boss took the hit. He went in, and he took responsibility for what I had done. He didn't lose his job, but he did lose a lot of clout, um, you know, uh, ability to maneuver in the, in the company. And in some ways, she said it was, it was his responsibility because he's my boss, but the situation was such, I mean, he could have avoided it. He could have thrown me under the bus, and he could have come out of that whole thing smelling like a rose. She said, I was absolutely blown away by what he did. So I went to his office afterwards, and I asked him. She said, I've been doing this for a while now. I've often had supervisors take credit for what I've done, I have never seen a supervisor take the blame for what I've done. She said, I've had managers uh, parasitically move their, advance their career forward based on my work. I've never seen one jeopardize their career based on my failure. So I guess her, her boss, you know, he tried to be modest, he hemmed and hawed a little bit, just, you know, just forget it. She said, you know, typical male sort of stuff. But then she wasn't a male, she was a female, a female, so she wanted to know. So he replied, I'll just say this once. I'm a Christian, and Jesus Christ took the blame for me. And that's why sometimes I have both the desire and the ability to take the blame for others. And she said, where do you go to church? <laughs> Friends, some of it, we live in that moment where, where nobody, nobody in the office or a classroom or a neighborhood knows 
who we are, what we believe, or to whom we belong. But eventually, God will set before you a choice that has to be made. So resolve today, which side of the fence are you going to land on? I'm talking to Medway Community Church family for just a second. Now listen, we are not the most impressive people. We're not the richest people. But we are here. You are that, you are that kid on the soccer field. Okay? You are that student in the classroom. You are that grown-up in the office or on the manufacturing line or on the work crew or in the mom's neighborhood playgroup. I'll be honest, you're not the most impressive congregation. <laughs> and you didn't hire the most impressive pastor. But we read the book. We know how it ends. God wins. And therefore, let's take a moment, step back and consider that we live in a world today where our best and our brightest routinely throw up their hands and say, actually, none of this really matters. Ultimately, it's all just a random collocation of molecules. And in the midst of that emptiness, who knows, sixth grader, if you have not been placed on that softball team for such a time as this? Who knows, student, if you have not been placed in that hostile to the gospel university setting for such a time as this? Who knows, mom and dad, if you are not going through the very heartache that you are going through for such a time as this? The hymn writer, he said it far better than I ever could in verse. When through fiery trials, thy pathways shall lie. Right? Not over, not around, through. When through fiery trials, thy pathways shall lie. My grace all sufficient shall be thy. That soul, though all hell, should endeavor to shake. I'll never, no, never, no, never. Living a Christ-centered identity means coming clean about who we are, what we believe, and to whom we belong. So at the end of the story, Esther makes her choice. And you know, never again in this story, in this narrative, will you see her take a command from Mordecai. Instead, now she gives her first one. She says, gather all the Jews, command them all to have a fast on my behalf. I'm going to do the same thing with all the ladies around me. That's the most explicit religious event in this entire book. And then she says, now go to the king. Though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And reading through New Testament glasses, right? Because we always want to read our Bibles backwards. So we go to the New Testament. We read the Old Testament through New Testament glasses. And then we think about, oh, this is echoed all over the place. For instance... Paul, in Romans 14, saying, if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or whether we die, we belong to the... No longer. This is where it happens. No longer is she just a queen in name, but she's becoming a queen in character. There's resolve here and strength 
and humility. And I, I think a growing understanding or recognition that in, the broken, that in a broken world, I cannot do everything, but I can do something. So what is the one thing God has called me to today? In a broken world, I can't do everything, but I can do something. So what is the one thing God has called me to today? Think about it. Esther, she lived in glory, majesty, and beauty. It was all hers and she set it aside. Does that remind you of anybody? (laughs) Except in Jesus' case, he didn't say, if I perish. He said, when I perish. See, folks, this Jesus who comes to us, he is not anything like the king who forbid others to go to him. This King Jesus is the king who stepped into history, stepped onto a cross, and then stepped out of a grave. Do you know this Jesus? That's question one. Here's question two. Does anybody else know that you know this Jesus? Living a Christ-centered identity means we finally come clean about who we are, what we believe, and to whom we belong. We preach it, we think it, we pray it. for joining us for today's message. Medway Community Church would love to welcome you as our guest one day soon. Our church family meets every Sunday morning for worship and also offers a wide variety of small group and ministry opportunities. To learn more, please visit us on the web at medwaycommunitychurch.org. We look forward to seeing you soon. Washing all my shame.